We love Ascent Nutrition. Ascent Nutrition was founded by my good friend Lance Shuttler, and it's making a huge difference in this community. They have a new product that is sweeping the nation, pine pollen. Last year, several prominent scientists started speaking out about the power of pine trees and the benefits they can offer us. Ascent Nutrition offers raw, wild-crafted pine pollen. Pine pollen contains 200 nutrients in it, making it a true superfood. It's nature's highest source of phytohormones, which support hormone and libido health for men and women. Pine pollen also supports brain health, detoxification, as well as many facets of cardiovascular health. Their pine pollen is selling fast. It's literally flying off the shelves. Ascent Nutrition is on a mission of offering deeply transformative and helpful nutrients to as many people as possible to help bring about a great collective shift in human consciousness and human health. To order your pine pollen supply and check out everything Ascent Nutrition has to offer, use the link in the description or visit GoAscentNutrition.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your entire purchase. back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Freddie Silva. First, I have some announcements. If you want to advertise with Forbidden Knowledge News, email me. That's ForbiddenKnowledgeNews at gmail.com. We do have unbeatable pricing for our ad packages. We have individual ad options, and we work with you to produce the most effective ad possible. Our website is ForbiddenKnowledge.News. This is also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network. You'll find some of your favorite podcasts from our community there, Raised by Giants, Inception, Understanding Propaganda, and more. Forbidden Knowledge News is always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, all podcast platforms. Rockfin is where you get our premium content, as well as all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin. You just go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus or click the link in the description to sign up. You can also create a free account and get access to everyone's free content, including all our regular shows. Today, I want to welcome back to the show, Freddie Silva. He is a best-selling author and leading researcher of ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and their interaction with consciousness. He is also a leading expert on crop circles. Freddie, welcome back. How you doing? Pretty good. Yourself? 
I'm excellent. It is great to have you back. It's been a long time. And you know, so much of our world has changed since the last time. Uh, but that's a whole different show. Today, we're going to be discussing... <laughs> well, I was abducted. I have no idea what happened in the last yeah, few years. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> Even though I talk about it, I still don't know what's going on. Yeah, uh, they, today we're... Down, they took me away. They put me on a beach for two years, brought me back to Worth. And I'm thinking, why are we so upset? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, that's a whole different show. So today, we're going to discuss some of those major changes, but from our ancient past. And I want to get your insights into who our ancient ancestors were, how advanced they could have been. And I know that you're working on a couple of other projects that I'd love to discuss today, including Mystery of the Maya and Scotland's Scotland's Hidden Sacred Past. So yeah, we've got lots to talk about. Um, First, I want to start here. This planet has experienced multiple cataclysms that most likely erased most of the human population many times throughout our history. I want to get your insights into when do you think this most recent extinction-level event uh, occurred that we have evidence of? And I'm talking, you know, probably um, maybe 90% or more of the planet did not survive. Yeah, it was uh, the one big thing that everybody talks about in the ancient world. And the one thing I enjoy about, about my work is listening to people whose ancestors were closer to these events than uh, we white Europeans are. Uh, we tend to get so much of our information from the academic model, which is completely wrong. Once you look at the uh, evidence, um, the people who are indigenous uh, have a much better grasp of the understanding of the ancient past. And they're very unanimous that uh, 11,000 years ago, which would have been 9,000, 703 BC, Tuesday, um, according to the uh, geological record in the uh, the Greenland ice core, which gives us a very big uh, black stain of dirt that was thrown all around the world. And it's pretty much a time also when the sea levels are rising pretty abruptly about 400 feet. And that's when we lost the majority of people who dwell on this uh, planet. But also, if we look at the surviving Egyptian text, they also talk about how there was a parallel civilization uh, living alongside the hunter-gatherers, the gods by uh, any other name. And they said that they had lived on islands and the... um, the, the conflagration also took out most of the divine uh, habitants of those islands. That's a direct quote from uh, what they wrote. Uh, and it was only the people who had been lucky enough, the groups of gods who had been lucky enough to be in the middle of the ocean when uh, fragments of uh, disintegrating comets hit the earth, uh, are all the right places that you want to create a massive flood. The ones who have been lucky enough to be in the middle of the ocean survived uh, because, of course, as anyone knows, that um, if you have a tsunami, uh, the closer you are to the continental shelf, the, the, the certainty are that you're going to be killed. So that's where we get the stories from, that there was a very unanimous agreement that there was, the Earth did pass through uh, the field of a broken up, a miniature planet by any other name. And it's something that NASA and a lot of mathematicians have now figured out what it is. And it happens every November and every June throughout history. In fact, we've had 13 near end of uh, world scenarios since that global flood event. Uh, which many people are not aware of. And it's always to do with this field of debris that the Earth passes through every November and every June called the Torrid Meteor Shower. Now, how far off are we from another one of these passing? Oh, I'm sorry. I have to go now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not far, actually. Uh, I was 
I didn't realize this, but for 20 years, I was sitting on a really important piece of information. I just didn't know what to do with it. It goes back to my first work with crop circle research uh, and secrets in the fields, all the evidence that was published scientifically to validate the fact that there was a piece of communication taking place by, let's say, an off-world community. And uh, 20 years later, we had this uh, crop circle that appeared in the south of England back in 1996, and it shows the inner solar system uh, to an incredibly accurate degree uh, of accuracy, and um, it shows the Earth missing. And it has all these asteroids going around it. It was beautiful. It uh, ticked all the boxes for validity. You know, the stalks were bent. There were discrepancies in electromagnetism, uh, deviation of water from the soil, uh, alteration of the plant's uh, genetic uh, structure, and so on and so forth. Uh, stuff that people just cannot replicate. And um, But this idea of the inner solar system with the Earth missing was very weird. So we figured out, uh, to, speaking to the astronomer, general at Boston University, he actually looked at the position of the Sun, the Mercury, Venus, and Mars, and he said, actually, if you can, you can actually figure that out when that particular alignment took place in the sky. And the first date that he got from that crop circle was 1902, November, uh, and it was the exact date that the Wright brothers took off from a beach in North Carolina. So we have a, a, a major milestone in aviation. Sorry, there's a bus outside. Um, and uh, <laughs> with a very bad uh, transformer. Um, the next date, which is given by the 67 asteroids around the crop circle, is November uh, 1972. Again, another milestone in aviation, because that's when the Mars probe was sent to the red planet. Now, next uh, 67 years, we end up at 2038. But why is the Earth missing? So I had no idea. So I'm now on my seventh book, 20 years later, and I'm banging it onto this story about this parallel civilization of gods who are here living alongside human beings. There's a, a major catastrophe. They built all these temples, and we have their legacy. And suddenly it dawned on me that I had all this information from NASA about predicting the next event. And they're all talking about a space time between 2032 and 2042, which just happens to coincide with the end of the Mayan calendar. Now, most people think that the Mayan calendar, the world ended in 2012. Obviously, that was wrong because we're still here. If you speak to the Maya, they'll say, no, that was just a midpoint. There's a window of 60 years 30 years either side of this date. And it ends literally in 2042. And that, you know, uh, that date of 2038 suddenly popped up in a crop circle about the, uh, an end of a world scenario. Well, I spoke to people at NASA, I spoke to a bunch of um, uh, mathematicians, and they said, actually, we've been tracking the meteor shower called the Torrids, which seem to be responsible for so many problems here on Earth every November. And we have worked out, we've now calculated that around 2032 to 2042, so we're only a decade away, the largest chunks that were actually responsible for the big flood 11,000 years ago are coming our way again. And this is why NASA is obsessed almost every week with releasing yet another PR uh, release talking about another comet they didn't know existed and the uh, importance of looking for near-Earth objects. So this obsession is now lining up with this message that we're given back in 1996. So we are living in very dangerous times right now, and I think that a lot of the stuff that they, uh, the ancestors built in terms of making things last 
you know, they're using big stones to make big temples and big stones standing in the middle of fields. I think they were trying to give us a kind of a heads up that luck favors the prepared. And if you're prepared and you understand how the sky works, you can actually figure out and calculate what's coming your way and you can act accordingly. It's almost like a, an insurance policy that we're left by the ancestors. And I kind of like the, uh, the theory because so far, so many people are beginning to latch onto it. Yes, it's so fascinating. And I do believe we are in a very critical time in our human history either way. Uh, and again, that is a, a different show that could take up an, uh, other, another whole couple of hours. Uh, but I want to get your insights into these ancient ancestors and how advanced they could have been and the their megalithic building styles, how this is possible with all the times we've tried to recreate this in our modern history and could not even come close. Uh, I want to get your insights into what could be the possible methods for moving large stones. And it looks like in some instances, these, these stones were melted on site and, and molded and all these fascinating types of aspects that we can't recreate now. Uh, I'd love to hear your insights into that. Yeah, I mean, the first obvious place to go is, you know, we built it and we uh, took us 5,000 people to move one stone, which, first of all, when you think about it, is very impractical. Uh, I've seen this story in Peru, uh, Oya and Tambo, and uh, they have some of the biggest masonry in South, excuse me, in South America down there. And uh, if you track the stones back to the quarry, you'll see that someone just suddenly dropped the work in progress. They were building this massive temple on top of the hill, which the Spanish took no time in destroying. Uh, and yet um, these stones are still in situ as though someone was taking the stones out of the quarry and they said, um, put down the stones. There's something big coming this way. And they just left them right there. Now, I follow that story along a little bit and uh, did a, little, a little bit of the local folklore. And they were saying, you know, back when the Spanish were here, uh, they tried to take one of these stones from the quarry to, this, to the town so that the, the local priest can build himself a nice house. It took uh, 15,000 men to drag one stone. And at one point they lost uh, track of it. The stone uh, rolled down the hill and it killed 5,000 of them in one minute. Uh, so I don't think uh, even during the Spanish uh, era, we had that technology. So look at this a, bit, uh, a little bit further. Um, I've collected stories around the world from indigenous people who talk about how their ancestors were there watching these things being built a long, long, long time ago. And the one thing that connects the stories together is the fact that they said, one, they were built literally overnight. And they don't make a meaning a metaphor overnight. They mean absolutely it was built in the blink of an eye. Two, there was always sound, uh, whether it was done by a human voice, a vocal command, or the use of a musical instrument. And three, the stones always floated through the air. And I put that in the box of how do we prove this? Well, in comes Princeton University about uh, 30 years ago. They had a department that was actually looking into the uh, sort of fine line between science and mysticism, the wonderful place where magic occurs. And they actually took up the same challenge. And they said, what if it is possible, since everything in the universe is made from vibration, what it is possible that the ancestors understood the vibration of any object, could tune into the, an object and then find out the resonant frequency and create its antinode? Because uh, that's what we use for sound warfare. If you want to destroy something, a building, 
thing or a person, you focus a specific frequency of sound with amplitude, and you can destroy human tissue or concrete in seconds. Uh, that has been known since the 50s. Uh, the Russians were particularly good at it, and uh, uh, they decided to shelve it because it was so dangerous. So there you go. Uh, so what Princeton did is that the other thing that I was looking at was look at the composition of the stone. No matter where you go around the world, the stones came from a long, long way away. The quarry is never where you want it to be, which is nearby. So there's something about the structure of the stone. And the one thing that connects them all together, they all have a particular type of quartz. And it's the same type of quartz that was used for the first radio receivers. So now we've got a connection here between sound and transmitting uh, vibration. So what Princeton did was to take that piece of quartz, put it in a laboratory in a tube, and they began to experiment with sound frequency and amplitude. And at one point, when they finally hit the two together, there used to be a video on the Princeton site. I don't know if it's still up and running, but there was a long time ago. And it does show the piece of quartz, not much bigger than this. It gets hit by a sound frequency and it just starts to move up and start doing anti-gravity. Now, the next connection is how did it move them? Well, every single sacred site on the face of the earth is located on the earth's tillery currents, the electromagnetic lines of force that circle the earth. When you've got an object that's already levitating, all you have to do is put them on an electric magnetic conveyor belt and a child could literally push a thousand ton rock with his finger along that line. Uh, and suddenly folklore is now beginning to take on the aspect of modern science. I begin to realize that this is how they actually did it because it fulfills so many criteria that we've heard from people around the world. That's incredible. Uh, and as far as the these individual ancient ancestors that, that built this, um, we have plenty of different theories as to the nature of if they're even human. You know, we have your uh, off-planet ancient alien theories. And then there are some that just believe that these were just very advanced humans and we had different types of advanced humanoids and humanoids of different sizes and shapes. And they may have looked very different than uh, what you consider to be modern humans. I want to get your, your take on the nature of what these ancient builders were. Yeah, I mean, it was to be in two types of people going around. We had the hunter-gatherers, and then we had what they described as people who were human-like, but not quite human. It's a great phrase, and I heard that several times around the world. And this is how they describe the gods. Now, let me point out, first of all, that a god is not a white guy with a big beard dispelling, you know, firestone and brimstone from a throne in, in heaven. A god is essentially a form of nature. So water has a god, a plant has a god, a stone has a god. It's the spirit behind any, uh, any form. Once you and I understand that spirit form and can harness it and can bend the rules, you become as a god. And that's how they began to realize that there were people who lived here on Earth who were, who were humanoid, but much taller than what we are. I mean, I'm six foot five. These people were two feet taller than me. And we've got the bones all around the world to prove it. And the, uh, our ancestors were saying these are the people who had the know-how of how to build this information, uh, how, how to build these sites, because they had advanced information. They're the ones that taught us the civilizing arts of mathematics, astronomy, the alphabet, writing, uh, how to grow crops and milk uh, a cow, things that basically sustain society. And uh, as to where they came from, that's the big question. I was um, focusing, uh, when 
when I was writing The Missing Lands, uh, that really came to the forefront of the conversation. And I began to collect information from people, again, from indigenous cultures. And the, again, the one thing that connects them all, they always mention Orion as a source. Now, depending on who you're talking to, they'll say, at one point, a long, a long, a long, 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 long time ago, they were able, were able to come from the belt stars of Orion, and they actually came here to Earth, and they go back as easily as you and I go shopping for a can of baked beans. And then after a long period of time, something happened where they kind of lost the ability to get uh, go backwards and forwards. So they built specific temples where the laws of physics could be manipulated, where they could enter the temple, and then they would appear in the belt stars of Orion. And then after that, they lost that, that ability. So then they began to do it shamanically. And that's kind of where we are right now. But there's always the connection with Orion to the point where if you go to Japan and you go to one of their sacred sites, you'll come, first of all, to the big doorway. It's called the Tori Arch. It's, a, it's painted in bright red, and it has a big crossbar with two members holding it up. It's ubiquitous in Japan. And they're saying in that culture, that crossbar represents the belt stars of Orion. And the center point where we enter the temple is a metaphor for whether the heart of creation exists in the specific region of the sky, which is in the middle of Orion. And it's what NASA identifies as the M42 nebula. And they're saying, and I quote, it's the biggest star forming region that we know in the galaxy. So there again, uh, we're beginning to catch up today to the origin of where not only the aliens come from, because it depends on your understanding of what alien really is, um, because most of the people that talk about the ancestors were very comfortable with them. They were very human-like, but not quite human. So they were not necessarily little green people or little gray aliens, although those have been documented as well. The people that they mostly interacted with were people like us, but they were much taller, and they also had the elongated skulls, of course. And that most incredibly of all, they were described as light-skinned, blonde or red hair, and they had green or blue eyes. And I hear that from the Pacific, the South America, the Central America to Africa. It's always this association with what we now would be describing as a Caucasian race. And these, these ancestors, they were a, it was a global phenomenon. They had influences yeah. and they had megalithic structures and construction and teachings from across the planet. And they were able to influence the growth and development of, of many different cultures, right? Absolutely. In fact, that uh, within a couple of hundred years of the uh, flood happening, we have these hotspots around the world where humans magically discovered civilization spontaneously. Uh, either we're all smoking the same stuff uh, or we had a, a collective uh, inspiration, which is not unreasonable, or someone, survivors from these places which I identified as, as islands all around the world, and they're all gone now, um, they, the, their survivors ended up going to the continental shelf and having to interact with humans. They didn't want to interact with us. They recognize the fact that if they're more advanced, uh, than hunter-gatherers, then they are likely to influence and distort the natural evolution of a species. Just like today, we you know, have to be very careful about going traveling in the jungle somewhere and uh, not coming into contact with people who have never met people who are wearing watches, because that will distort their own natural development. So it was at these moments where people in South America, like Vida Kosha and his Shining Ones appear, suddenly you have a growth of civilization in South America. Then you go to the Pacific, same thing. You go to China, Japan, same thing. Uh, Egypt, this, the landing of the uh, Shining Ones, the Follow Horus 
in uh, the Nile Valley around 8,500 BC, which started an agricultural revolution. Uh, even in Yucatan, uh, they have the exact date of 9,600 BC, which is within 100 years of these people called the people of the serpent, who are basically, it was a kind of a badge of office. If you understand the way the laws of the nature works, and because the laws of nature act like serpents when they flow around the land, you become a person of the serpent. So nothing to do with reptilians. And they're saying that they arrived in three groups in the Yucatan and around the Gulf of Mexico uh, from a sinking island in the middle of the Atlantic called Atl. And these were magician priests called the Its. They were very big on big on long names back then. So very easy to remember. Atl, Its. And uh, one of them we know, Quetzalcoatl. The other one is Kukulkan. The other one's Itzamna, who very few people know about. Uh, so again, we had this big burst of civilization in Yucatan at that particular moment. So there was this interaction by people who knew more than we did. And the whole point, to quote the Egyptians, is that they wanted to rebuild the former world of the gods. In other words, the temples that we see today are mirror images of what's now destroyed or underwater. And one of those uh, cultures that I want to discuss, you actually re recently did a video on Mystery of the Maya. They were one of those that seemed to have rebuilt on top and tried to to mimic some of these more uh, ancient civilizations. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your video and what does it touch on? Yeah, the uh, the fourteenth video. I've been very busy during COVID. Uh, a lot of books written, a lot of uh, videos produced. I mean, what else are you going to do? Um, yeah, I was. I have spent many years doing tours to Yucatan. I learned a lot from the local Maya people. Uh, you always learn more from people who are so connected with their own history. And a lot of it, they've never told white people ever because they don't trust them. I don't blame them, to be honest, after what they went through with the Spanish. So once you gain their interest and you declare your intention to learn more and be a teacher to other people and set the record straight, the more they begin to tell you. And one of the things that was so important about putting this video out was to focus on on the prehistory of the Maya. Now, the official version, the Maya suddenly show up in the, out of middle of nowhere with a calendar that can track 50,000 years of time. Okay, so think about it. it. That does not make any sense from any point of view. Uh, and why would you need a 50,000 year calendar when all you need to do is plant crops? I mean, you and I can take a bunch of sticks, put them in your lawn. You can figure out what the sun and the moon are doing for a whole calendar year and then grow your crops and harvest. You don't need 50,000 years to calculate the sky unless you inherited that from somebody else who had to have been around for 50,000 years in order to understand what things were doing, plot them, and then calculate a, a, a calendar that could be projected through time. So the idea behind the video was to put the emphasis not so much on the Maya, who appeared in 3000 BC, but on the people who came before them. And now you're on a completely different story. So we have these people called the Its, which literally means magician priest. And they went around in groups of seven, and they were led by one charismatic leader, the eighth, uh, who incidentally was always married to his sister. Uh, and that's the same story that you'll hear in Egypt as well and all around the world. And uh, they went around in a place, for a uh, they started in a place called uh, Itzamal, which is still a, a town in Yucatan to this very day. It has the biggest pyramid in Yucatan, if not most of Mexico, and hardly anyone knows about it. Uh, the Spanish actually destroyed most of it when they took the place apart and built their own temples and cathedrals in the town. But it's still an impressive site when you go there. So you start off there and you follow the trail of Itzamna all the way through Yucatan, how they were the foundation of Chichen Itza, which bears their name. Ushmal is another one of their major temple cities. And eventually, uh, after what they had been through uh, with the flood and the raising of sea levels, 
not surprisingly, they wanted to get as far away from the coast as possible because Yucatan is very flat. So I'm not surprised that the story then goes into Guatemala. And that's where you find some of the biggest secrets about the Itz and the pre-Maya culture. Uh, they landed in a place called uh, Lake Peten Itza, which still bears their name. And the island that they chose in there mimics, it's a small version of what used to be Atlantis in the middle of the, uh, Pacific, uh, in the, middle of the Atlantic. And their biggest temple city was there. Uh, no longer exists. It was all dismantled by the Spanish, but you can still go there and you can still vestiges in the town. And you keep going further into uh, the, the, the jungle, into Palenque and into Tikal, which are impressive. And when I was at Tikal, uh, and I put this into the video, uh, I, was, I was talking to uh, one of the local archaeologists and uh, I didn't know much about Tikal. There's very little that's actually been documented about it that's written in English. And, uh, and I was inquiring, well, what have you found about uh, Tikal? I said, well, we're just putting some papers together. And uh, it's quite astonishing. And I said, well, I wouldn't be surprised if there was uh, like uh, like nine levels underneath the, the main courtyard, because I don't think that the pyramids were places that people went up. I think people went through an underground cave, through an umbilical cord inside the pyramid. They would stay there like an initiation. And then they would appear magically on the platform at the top. And the stairs were for coming down. And the archaeologist went really quiet. I said, how do you know that? I said, I, well, the site is telling me this. I just feel this. I'm getting this image. This is how I get my information. I said, actually, we have discovered seven levels underground below the, uh, the site. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were nine because that's a cosmological number for the Maya. Uh, the rest of it we can't access because it's so old and so degraded by earthquakes that it's actually unsafe to go. But there is a picture of the original ruler or the god man called Itzamna. Uh, in one of the actual rooms below the ground. I thought, wow, that's incredible. So it's one of those moments where an open-minded archaeologist and someone who deals with ancient mysticism get together and we're exactly on the same page. And um, the next thing is that, well, you really need to go to uh, uh, Lake Atitlan because that's eventually where the it's ended up. And sure enough, they named it Lake Atitlan in homage of the place where they came from in the middle of the Atlantic. And ironically, that when they finally got there 2,000 years later, so after the flood, they were going around Yucatan, spreading through Guatemala to Belize, building their temple cities. 2,000 years later, they finally figured, I think it's time we settled somewhere. So they chose a little island in the middle of, middle of Lake Atitlan in Guatemala, beautiful place, surrounded by volcanoes. And it reminded them of their Atlantic home that had sunk during the global flood. That's why it's called Lake Atitlan. And ironically, it sank because of a massive uh, earthquake. So you figure that they would have learned to live in a less volcanic area uh, because the Atitlan essentially used to be where the Azores archipelago is today in the middle of the Atlantic. You figure they'd move somewhere a little bit more safe. But uh, it's kind of ironic how that happened. That is so interesting. Now, what did you learn about this pre-Maya civilizations, uh, spiritual practices. I know that there's a lot of misconceptions that these were a violent people practicing human sacrifice. Uh, what did you find out? Check out our friends at Linguistity Gifts. Linguistity Gifts is a metaphysical store offering natural gemstone bead bracelets, signature and zodiac, designed and made in the United States, as well as raw and polished stones, crystal balls, pendulums, tarot cards, natural crystal points, wands, and so much more. Their beautiful signature design bracelets can aid with creativity, balance, focus, and well-being. 
They can even customize the bracelets for you. Just send them an email to find out pricing and availability. Visit their website using the link in the description or visit linguistitygifts.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your first order over $20. And right now they are offering $5 off the purchase of two or more bracelets. Linguistitygifts.com uh, the Aztec were the ones who were doing all the human sacrifice because they came much later. Uh, they had no idea what the hell they were reading. They inherited someone else's cosmology uh, because it's all written in symbol and metaphor. They took these things literally and they figured that in order to stop the sky falling down on their heads every 52 years with the cycle of Venus, they had to kill 50,000 people accordingly. Uh, they got it completely wrong. Uh, the human sacrifice did not uh, come into Yucatan at all and it barely touched the Maya. Uh, same reason behind the ball court. Uh, the early Victorian archaeologists were looking at the panels and thinking, wow, this is a really gruesome blood sport. But they failed to understand and grasp the symbol, uh, symbolic nature of what they're looking at and the whole metaphorical structure. And in fact, the ball court at Chichen Itza describes not just a, it's not about a gruesome ball game, it's about the decapitation of the ego, where the main player has to basically cut off his ego in order to access a finer level of, of understanding. And the idea is to take this ball, which represents the earth, and put it through this big hoop, which is about 30 feet up, which is quite a big, uh, a, a, you know, it's a bit of a challenge to get a, a little ball 30 feet through a hoop up there. Uh, the idea was to take this, this ball and metaphorically put it through the hoop, which is guarded by two serpents, which are essentially the currents of magnetism and electricity, and it enables you to see and peer into the other world. So once you understand the metaphor and the symbology of ancient teachings, the whole of the ball courts has nothing to do with the blood sport at all. It's about the raising of self-awareness. Uh, the whole game, the whole ball court, it was even laid out like a game of chess. Uh, in fact, that's where the game actually comes from. And even the shape of the court, which is two T's uh, sort of glued together, uh, the shape of the court symbolizes the breath of God. Whenever you see that T-shape, that is Tao. It is the breath of God. So that doesn't sound to me like a gruesome ball sport uh, to begin with. But all of these things that the Maya said came originally from Itzamna and Quetzalcoatl, people who were practicing nonviolence. And they were vegetarians, by the way. So I'm sorry, all you meat eaters. Uh, you'll never get to heaven. And that will include me, of course. But they were very much into practicing nonviolence. They were talking about love thy neighbor. Uh, we could, we're all on the same ship traveling through the sky. We can't get off here. We may as well uh, respect each other and get along. It was a, basically a, a culture of peace, but also about understanding yourself. And they taught the Maya this incredible ritual, which is practiced all around the world, where people who were curious would be taking to special temples, not necessarily the biggest pyramids, by the way, and they would be given a poison which would induce a near-death experience where they left the body for three days. The soul literally went walkabout in the other world, and there they would gather all the real knowledge and the truth behind the existence of the universe. But they also learned about themselves because the idea was, and this took three years of teaching, when you come back into the physical body, you remember everything that you've done and what you've and what you've learned. Uh, Pythagoras and Plato in the Greek era also did this ritual, and they said it helps shape our metaphysical doctrine. And there's no other place in the universe where you will find 
truth. That's the only place where you can find it. Uh, you can read up about this stuff. You can try and practice uh, uh, practice it and walk the talk. But unless you go for this initiation, you will never have that experience. And you should do it before you die. It was called the living resurrection. It eventually becomes the story that Jesus was following, except the church took the metaphor and took it literally. And we ended up with something which is a complete perversion of what really is Gnostic Christianity. So we're talking about the groups of gods who gave this information all around the world, because even Native American people have exactly the same manual. Well, that brings me to uh, the importance of plant medicines in some of these ancient rituals that our ancestors yeah. used. And not only plant medicine, but different types. Um, you know, you, you mentioned this type of poison. I know there were psychedelics. I know there's all type other types of entheogens that were probably used to kind of induce these altered states that would allow them to communicate with what is considered the other side, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, one thing that uh, I, I actually wrote about this in The Lost Art of Resurrection, I was collecting stories all around the world about these mystical practices and how they differ from shamanism. And if you talk to the shaman who still practice today in Central and South America, they'll say, yes, the hallucinogenic is supposed to be an approximation of the experience. That's not the real experience. A lot of gringos like to show up for a weekend or for a week, and they think they can just have this incredible religious and spiritual experience. Well, it's kind of an approximation because to do it properly, you really have to give at least eight to nine months of your life away. You have to prepare. You have to do inner work. You have to control your fear. That's the most important thing about this journey because you're literally going to be given a poison which will have an induced near-death experience. That's really dangerous. You've got to really know what you're doing, and that's the real thing. Anything to do with the hallucination is an approximation of the true experience. It kind of shows you, yeah, it's kind of what it's like on the other side, but it's not really it because this, the chemical in the, in the hallucinogenic structure will uh, create a kind of electrical impulse within the brain, which will simulate uh, the experience, but it's not the experience itself. So there's two which are running parallel, but it's still a way to sort of get you into the mood, so to speak, of what it would be like to have this out-of-body experience and to come back with the information. So the two are kind of not quite the same thing. One is a kind of a uh, almost like a, 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 a mirror image of the other, but not quite. And I, I don't even know if anybody's still doing the out of the true out of body experience, unless you go to like deepest Guatemala or deepest uh, Bolivia. Uh, and I do believe people are still doing it, but it's uh, the government doesn't want you to uh, to do any of this because, well, heaven forbid, you might come back with some really useful information. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, do you think that this was uh, something that was used by our ancient ancestors that was taught to them by some of the more um, advanced, what we might consider, you know, um, humanoids uh, or maybe even off-planet individuals that we're speaking about? Uh, or was this something that was discovered by our ancient ancestors and then that actually kind of evolved consciousness and maybe they were the ones who started building these megalithic structures and forming our humanity because they found these certain types of plant medicines and entheogens? Uh, probably a bit of both. Uh, I mean, the earliest record I've found of the uh, teachings goes to Japan in about 8,000 BC, around the same time that the gods are appearing in Japan after a global flood. So there's a connection here, uh, and it's called the Way of Ise. Uh, which literally is ISIS. So what ISIS is doing in Japan is another question. 
Uh, it's quite strange. Uh, it's almost like she's an archetypal image. Mm. So the 17 ways of Issa literally describe the different teachings that allow you to have this, you know, evolving out-of-body experience. And you'll find that also in the, the Tao or the Tao, which eventually becomes uh, the uh, teachings of Mithras in India, and eventually becomes the way of the Essenes. So you see how this, there's a progression that goes through the East all the way to the Near East uh, over thousands of years, but it's the same teaching. Uh, but it always seems to appear the earliest record that we have seems to be just after the flood. That's the earliest record. Before that, we don't know because so much was was destroyed uh, it, or it just remains to be uh, discovered still. Um, but um, I do believe that the teachings actually came with people who were already quite developed in their sense of consciousness. And then they were able to teach that to hunt the gatherers. Now, whether we discovered that also by accident, because, you know, you could be sitting in the Amazon chewing the bark of something. And before you know it, you, you didn't, didn't realize it, that you've left the body for two days and someone is slapping you in the, in the head trying to revive you. Um, it's quite possible that we also discovered this by ourselves uh, just by trial and error. Uh, I remember a story in 1890 in the Great Lakes region uh, in Michigan where there's a tribe whose name I cannot pronounce properly and uh, they were still practicing it then. They would take this poison and uh, when they said it, it was the, the, the poison, uh, it was the... Uh, the wasn't the poison that they called it. It was the elixir of the gods, they called it. And it allowed you to go to the next level of reality and come back with information. And they literally buried these people for three days. They, they kind of, you know, they, they left the head outside of the soil. And then when to bring them back into consciousness, the shaman would take a deer skin pouch, put a rock in it and whack you <laughs> to get you back into the body. Because leaving is easy. Uh, anybody can leave the body. Coming back is the hard part. Because A, you don't want to because it's so nice over there and two um you're also so distracted by so many things you've never seen that you lose track of time and location and before you realize it the window of opportunity to get back into your body uh, disappears that's for this reason that uh, people every year pay 15 grand to sit the entire night in the great pyramid of giza and the guards open up the room in the morning and the person is dead inside the box uh, because they have not been able to find their way back. And uh, in fact, I had a person on one of my tours. Uh, I go twice a year here. Um, and I tell people, do not go in the box. It's dangerous. I've been there. I've done it. Uh, somehow I got back. It's almost like I was protected in order to tell people and write about it because that's my job. Uh, but I'll tell you, you have to have a certain protocol before you go in there. Don't go in there. Of course, there's always one. And uh, we're about to do a meditation. I said, well, where is this guy? And his wife is going, I can't get him out of the box. Said, oh, God, it took us 20 minutes to revive the guy. And I'm not kidding. There's plenty of witnesses to this. 20 minutes to revive this guy. We finally got him down the, uh, the pyramid. I don't know how we did it. And for two hours later, he's not the same person. I think he skipped dinner. He went straight to bed, woke up next morning. He's totally different. I mean, he's, he had one hell of a fright. Um, so he won't be trying that one again on his own. Yeah, and not to get too off topic, but if you leave your body, say, in this in this instance in the Great Pyramid, this is probably much different than just regular astral travel or, or out-of-body experiences oh, uh, where it, it seems like it would probably be easier to get back in your body uh, otherwise, right? Um, it depends on your level of understanding and awareness and how much control you have over the rules which enable you to leave and return. I mean, in my case, I was still pretty much a neophyte of all of this. I mean, this is a little bit like, almost like 
20 years ago when this happened to me. Uh, but my, my idea is to be a teacher to other people. I need to understand what's happening in order for me to write about it. I don't want to write about it just from a third-hand uh, person right. account. I want to do it from a first-hand account if it's possible. And it's because of that intent that I took in there that I was allowed to leave literally within seconds. I'm traveling in all kinds of directions. I mean, these, these places are real. These people are real. And then next thing I know, someone's nudging me going, oh, we got to get out of here uh, because the guards are coming. We weren't supposed to be in the box. And I'm going, what the hell happened? You've been out for 20 minutes. And I swear it wow. took five seconds. Uh, and I'm still kind of groggy and not quite sure what was going on. And after that, I couldn't stop writing. And in fact, it became the foundation for my second book. Uh, that's how it happens. But that's my path, you see. Uh, I'm trying to do this from a point of view where I've done it. I've got the T-shirt. Uh, and I kind of approach it almost like a, uh, like a moron, you know, really, like a child. I don't know where I'm going, but I feel very protected that I'm going to the place because my intent is very true. My idea is to bring back information that then I can share with other people to help them on their arena raise their game. Right, that's incredible. Now, before we move too far off from the topic of the Maya, is there anything in particular that you learned in your journeys and research that was especially profound to you that you could discuss without giving away too much? Uh, I know no people to to go see your video. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have to kill you. Um, what well, have been the biggest thing was just the fact that Maya is not really a people; it's a it's a way of being. So like Maori, there's no such thing really as Maori people. It's a way of being. It's a spiritual ideal. So when enough people conform to that ideal and practice the ideal, they become Maya. Uh, that was the biggest revelation of all. But also the fact that the Maya were already around 6,000 years earlier than we uh, ever gave them credit for. And then one day in 3000 BC, when the rising, uh, the heliacal rising of the Pleiades pops up, and one of the uh, stars of the Pleiades is called Maya, that's when they finally appeared, you know, in the Yucatan in 3100 BC. Boom, Maya is here because they're starting their new, their new world at that particular moment. So, again, it, everything is, is, a, is upside down from what we've been taught in, in academia. Because, again, you listen to people whose uh, stories are mentally uh, recorded. They didn't write stuff down necessarily. And you got to gain their trust. And it was building that story. And slowly, each year, I'd build up a bit more of the story. And that's what became so important in understanding how the Yucatan works and, and how Guatemala works. For example, every single pyramid is built on truly architecturally stupid locations. They're built over caves. Yeah, think about that. You go to Chichen Itza and you go, wow, look at, the, look at that big pyramid. Big, impressive. It's full of mathematics. And uh, then you realize there's a big hole under it, literally. And uh, what I felt was extraordinary, having uh, have my own insights and also speaking to the local uh, shaman and the wisdom keepers, was that you know, I, I, I proposed this idea that the more I look at the cenotes, and these are the uh, the holes in the ground all over the Yucatan, which have formed when a meteorite millions of years ago hit the Yucatan and drove the rivers underground. There are no rivers in Yucatan. They're all underground. So the cenotes, or the big wells, are where the, the meteorites hit. So you go down into the cenote, beautiful water, I mean, to the point where you can drink it. It's so pure. Um, and I'm looking at uh, these things and looking at the caves and the things, and I said, you know, it seems to me that at one point, if you're looking at this as a whole metaphor, you know, the temple is the middle ground between the underworld, the creative underworld and the sky. That it seems to me that at one point you could travel on canoes uh, in through, the, through these canals under the Yucatan, through the cenotes, 
go to the sacred cave and pre prepare, and then you got these umbilical cords, uh, these tubes in the rock, because uh, it's all limestone, it's very easy to carve. And then you go into the pyramid, you do your work in the pyramid, and then you appear at the top like a god. And all the, all the people said, that's exactly how it used to, be, it used to be, because you have to look at the cosmology of the Maya. It's not the temple that's important, it's the Earth Mother that's important. You have to go into the body and the belly of the Earth Mother. That's the cave. And the water is also the uh, symbol of the Earth Mother. So once you're in contact with that, and you've prepared, now you can do the umbilical cord into the temple, and the pyramid is literally the, the phallic part of the temple. So you've got the belly of the mother, you've got the phallic part on top, and from that, you're pointing towards the sky, and suddenly the whole landscape stopped being a bunch of rocks. Everything was symbolic. Every, every room, every building, every doorway means something. Uh, in fact, there's one portion in the documentary where I take apart this quadrangle at Ushmal, and people walk in, they go, oh, lovely building, lovely building. Uh, let's take pictures without realizing what they're looking at. And I deconstructed every single um, uh, freeze, every building, every doorway. And it's mind-blowing. And it took eight years of work just going there year after year to look at the place and dismantle it piece by piece. Everything means something. So you're looking at an entire design ritual landscape. That was what was mind-blowing. Now, it seems that modern academia is completely frozen when it comes to a lot of these things that we're discussing today. Do you, do you see that ever changing in our, in our future? I know that independent researchers have definitely taken the lead on uh, discovery and finding out the truth about our ancient past. And, you know, these modern um, academics and, and archaeologists have just been kind of leading us in the wrong direction. And it continues, and they seem to be just stuck, like I said. And all these in wonderful independent researchers like yourself are kind of bringing us to the light. Uh, do you see that ever kind of changing in our, in our future? Oh, it is. I mean, only recently they uh, discovered and I the words interdisciplinary. <laughs> uh, this is what we do. I and mean, this is what I do. I, I, what I write about and all my books are not my point of view. I mean, we don't need more opinions in the world. There's plenty of them on YouTube and uh, Facebook already. Uh, we're swimming in opinions, but none of them bear any resemblance to reality. And what I do is I borrow from geologists. I borrow from archaeologists. I borrow from historians, folklore, indigenous people, uh, in personal insights and personal experience, climatology. I bring all of this, put it on my desk, and I go, now what holds this together? Boom. And I start seeing the connections. And before you realize it, you're closer to the truth than, than anybody. And that takes a lot of uh, guts to admit that, A, you're not always right, because you're not. Uh, only the people that were involved with the events were right. We're trying to figure out from the scraps of information in, their, in these rubbish heaps what they were doing and what they were up to. That's the hard part. It's like a forensic uh, examination of the past, like looking at a crime scene. Uh, and uh, when it comes to historians and archaeologists, they are, it's a very conservative field. They are very type A personalities. They have to be right. Once they latch onto a theory, they will not let go, despite all the well overwhelming evidence to the contrary, because they stake their reputations on it. It's about ego, essentially. And also, if you don't conform to the group consensus, you will never be published again. You will definitely not get any money, and you'll never have a university position. So I empathize with their position. They're in a difficult sort of cul-de-sac 
of thinking. But now with LIDAR, this wonderful technology that allows you to peer through the jungle and look through foliage and they go, my God, the whole of the Yucatan and Central America, it was one major city. Yes, duh. The people who lived there said, yeah, look, there's a pyramid. There's another pyramid. And they've been poo-pooed all along. And the, answer, the people who lived there said, no, we had a huge civilization before white people showed up and looked at it and said, oh, we're not as advanced as we thought we were in Europe. And they destroyed it. So suddenly, grudgingly, they're beginning to get to our point of view. But only when one of their lots, one of their group, you know, the cabal, comes up with the information and they published it, then they can go, oh, we came up with this information. No, they're reading what we're publishing. They're dismissing what we're saying. And then they go off and research it. And I know this because in Stonehenge, uh, 25 years ago, we worked out that the original post hole for Stonehenge uh, were put there in 8,000 BC. So, of course, everybody laughed at us. And we said, right, we're patient. Anyway, 25 years later, they finally looked at the information that we published, and I think it was in my second book, um, and they said, perhaps we should go and do some carbon dating of those holes and see if we can find some carbon dating in there. And they actually found pieces of the original wood that was in those post holes. They carbon dated it to 8,000 BC. Uh, so it took them a bit of time, but they finally got there. So, yeah, they, they poo-poo this stuff publicly. But, you know, when you uh, remove them from a camera and they'll tell you when the, when the microphone is off, they'll say, well, actually, it's the independent researchers that are doing all the best work because they're not hampered by any box. They're not hampered by thinking. They just go out and play and they start playing with the sandbox and see what pops up. We can't do that. We're just not allowed. So I think eventually they'll get there. It's a game. Yeah. Well, I love uh, that you have your hands in so many different areas of research. Uh, for the last uh, half of the show, I'd love to hear about your new book, Scotland, Scotland's Hidden Sacred Past. I can't pronounce today. Uh, <laughs> give well, us a little we'll do the rest of the program in <laughs> The rest of the program will be having in subtitles. Um, Scotland is an incredible place because nothing actually happened in Scotland to begin with, or Britain to that matter, in terms of megalithic structure. It happened on the islands to the north and the west of Scotland. And I thought that was a bit unusual. I would have thought people would come up from Europe, you know, go through the land bridge from France, end up in England, build Stonehenge and all that lot, and then end up in Scotland. Actually, the stuff in the British Isles is much newer compared to what's on the islands. So that gave me something to work with because there was nothing that was written about the stone circles of Orkney, the archipelago north of Scotland. Uh, there's some of the most beautiful, well-preserved stone circles in the British Isles. We know nothing about them, except from one account by a Scandinavian uh, group who arrived there about 2,000 years ago. And they said, well, there was this different class of people that lived here. They didn't speak like the locals. They didn't look like the locals. They were light-skinned and much taller. And I went, wait a minute. These are people that I've come across before in South America and in Egypt. And um, they, were, they behaved very differently. And they gave me two names. That's all I had. Well, I went to Sardinia uh, with Gaia. We did a, pro a show down there about the towers and the horn mounds that they have there. They're very unusual megaliths in Sardinia. And I'm walking around Sardinia and I'm going, wait a minute, I'm actually in Scotland right here. And we began to date the alignments of the sites there, and they predate Scotland by at least 4,000 years. They're way, way old. Sardinia has a culture which claims descendancy from Atlantis. 
And if you talk to any older person in a, in, a, in a cafe anywhere in Sardinia, they'll go, we're very proud of our heritage that used to come from Atlantis. The giants were here. We have pyramids which were here. The church will uh, say that they're works of the devil, so we can't talk about them. We'll be excommunicated. If we try to take the bones of the giants out of the graves, the police will arrest us. We'll lose our jobs. And I'm thinking, well, the police usually don't do that kind of thing unless they're being told to by the church who control most of Sardinia, because there's something, some truth to all of this. And the more I began to research this, I realized that the DNA of people who are working in Sardinia in 6,000 BC turn up in Scotland uh, a thousand years later because of climate change, ironically. So all this, the mounds that we see in Scotland on the islands with the horns at the front and the passageway where no one's buried, but they're looking down a barrel towards a star. And it's always Orion, by the way, which is the same connection in Sardinia. And also the round towers that they have in Scotland, which maybe sometimes you can have six people living there. They're useless as defensive uh, structures, but they're great places to study the stars. Well, that's what they were doing in Sardinia as well. Now, here's the overlap. No one knows where the culture from Sardinia came from either. And they call it the uh, Nuragic culture. No one knows what Nuragic means. And quite by accident, I got a, a book on Armenian language, and I found the word there. Uh, a nurag is a priest or a legate, someone who's involved with looking at the stars, who's part of a temple culture. So then I began to look at DNA and found that there's a huge movement of people that came from Armenia, from the highlands of Armenia, uh, around 6,000 BC, around the Black Sea, from the Ukraine, uh, and then they split into two. The uh, tall, light-skinned, blonde people ended up in Denmark and Scandinavia and formed the Nordic uh, people. And then they ended up in the Scottish islands. And the other group, the uh, red-haired people, went to Sardinia around Portugal, created the Basque country, and then went up to Ireland and created the bloodline of Ireland and then Scotland. So suddenly, these little islands on the edge of Scotland, of which we know nothing about, Turns out they, we can trace the whole story to the megalithic culture of Sardinia and from there to the origin of what is essentially much of um, Western language, which is uh, Ar Armenian. And from every single sacred site in Ireland and Scotland that I could find, there was the Armenian origin of those words, and they mean exactly what we're looking at. So, for example, the most incredible stone circle in Orkney in Scotland is Stennis. No one knows what it means. Well, Stennis in uh, Armenian means the place of council. And guess what? The first Scandinavians, when they arrived in Orkney, they said, well, originally the stone circle was where the council used to meet. So there was a folkloric memory that Stennis was actually the place of council, but that's exactly what it means. So it was an incredible book to write because it was stringing pieces together that you would never, ever would have found in the same room. And it was delightful because I had to learn what is essentially becoming a dead language. Uh, Armenian is spoken by very few people these days, especially ancient Armenian. And here's the rub. It's also found in Egyptian language and vice versa, to the point where a lot of the Armenian royal bloodline was intermarrying with the Egyptian bloodline, which is why their gods all look the same. They're very tall. They have the elongated heads. And the last of the uh, famous people that were intermarrying between Armenia and Egypt on the, for the thrones of the country was the uh, uh, woman called Nefertiti, who marries uh, Akhenaten, the pharaoh with the elongated skull. Remember him? Very unusual people. Well, it turns out that Nefertiti is not a name. It's a title. It's In Armenian, it means she who is the backbone of the pharaoh. 
So there's this wonderful tie between the bloodline of these two countries, these ancient cultures, which eventually their children end up being the royal bloodline of Ireland and Scotland. So that's why the book was had to be written. It's never been put together before. That's incredible. You mentioned a couple of things like elongated skulls and giants. These are uh, some of the things that we don't hear about in modern academia. You'll never hear, um, you know, legitimate modern science talk about this. Uh, and I wonder why this is such a hidden fact from our history that we had much taller individuals and some that might have had these elongated skulls. Yeah. Uh, first, do you think these were the one and the same, that the giants had elongated skulls or that they were kind of maybe just different types of, of humanoids? It was to do with the royal bloodline of the, of the gods. Uh, these humanoids who essentially are forefathers. And uh, they said that uh, from the, uh, the information that I've gathered, they said that it was very difficult to live in the physical body. I'm actually quoting this directly. It was very difficult for us to live in the physical body. We had, uh, uh, it was difficult for us to be in the physical world. We come from a, a place which is indescribable to any human being. So in order for us to, uh, to live a life here on earth and to teach people, uh, hunter-gatherers, what we knew, we had to develop an appropriate body because in nature, all form follows function. So in order to maintain our connection to the place where we came from originally, we had to develop the skull, which is longer because the spiritual component is at the back. That's the part of the skull that we know nothing about in the modern world. We still don't know what the back of the head is doing. The front of the, the, uh, the brain, yeah, we know all about that. It's all about logical and uh, information processing, which is what we need to survive. You know, you've got to know that when a lion comes towards you, if he's growling, he's probably going to eat you. So we need the big frontal lobe as humans to process information. Well, they had that, but they also had the elongated section of the back to communicate back to their source. And that's a direct quote from what I hear all around the world. So this is why they look very, very different. But the problem is they found it very difficult to also interbreed with humans at first to the point where, and this story comes from the Wichita of Oklahoma, who said, yeah, those gods who are very much taller than us, they would sometimes take one of our women for a bride and the woman would give birth and she would die during childbirth because she gave birth to an infant. Yeah, because the, when you're eight and a half feet tall and the woman is only five foot tall, there's going to be a complication during childbirth. So it was problematic, but they succeeded after the trial and error. We don't know how. Uh, although the Sumerian stories have, they insinuate there's a lot of genetic experiment that was going on. Uh, they, um, they, they finally succeeded because it's the Egyptians and the Indian people talk about the uh, people who eventually took the uh, thrones of the countries who were half human half divine. So there was a mixed blood. But by that time, ironically, they're also losing their ability to communicate with the natural world because their whole ability to be healers or great psychic people was because they had such a connection with the invisible part of nature. Once you distill that and you're grounded like a human being, you're losing that connection, you see. And then it peters out. In fact, there's a wonderful phrase in the, the early Egyptian text to talk about the first ruler of a purely human bloodline finally takes the throne in 3100 BC, and his name was the pharaoh Mena, which, by the way, is an Egypt is a Armenian name, which means the first ruler. Uh, so these are things that were also found in the cosmologies of people all around the world. It was part of a very much a global structure. 
That's incredible. Yeah, and uh, I also should add as well that the uh, scientifically the longheads, which uh, um, they, it's a very big subject, uh, they differ from the uh, the experiments that human women did to their children. Uh, so when you buy bind the skull of a, a human child, they end up looking like a cone head. I mean, they look really stupid. And if you go to a museum in Peru, you'll go cone head, cone head. Wait a minute, what's that? Because despite the fact that they were elongated, there's a natural elegance to them. That's when you know you're looking at something different. And you can change. You can bind the skull of, a, of an infant and you can get it to change the shape, but you can't change the cubic proportion of the brain, okay? So we have a definite cubic uh, size for the brain. These in, uh, elongated skulls had a much greater cubic capacity, so the brain was much larger. That's a, genet a genetic trait, and you can't fake that. I find... If I remember correctly, I think they're 20 cents per six, uh, 26 percent larger than the human brain. So that is a definite genetic uh, trait, which is not found in humans. And isn't there something with where the spine connects to the actual skull is completely different location than normal humans, normal humans as well? Yes, absolutely. So there's also that part, which also doesn't fit the paradigm, which is why the archaeologists don't want to talk about it. It doesn't fit the paradigm. It doesn't fit the normal evolutionary uh, description of how we got here. Uh, well, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, there's probably a whole bunch of lines of humans and humanoids that we don't know about. I mean, we just discovered Denisovians, for heaven's sake. Uh, up until 10 years ago, no one ever mentioned about Denisovians. So now we're onto a completely uh, different ballgame here. I've, I mean, archaeologists, and history really um, are, are, are conspiratory in the sense that they will look at the information that's available and they'll take that as fact, an undeniable fact. But then a, a lucky turn of the spade tomorrow will turn up a new piece of evidence that completely undermines that whole idea. But it takes them decades to bring that on board. It's, a, it's like watching a glacier melt. It's very, very slow, uh, uh, these things. Now, I want to go back to uh, your research into Scotland and the stone circles. I had a guest on the other day that does crop circle photography, and this also goes back to crop circles, uh, in the UK and around this location that has stone circles that has some of the most crop circles that have ever appeared on the planet. And uh, I want to get your take on if you believe there's any connection here to some of these crop circles and these stone circles that are in those different locations in Europe. Yeah, there is. Uh, one of the first things that we found out when we did crop circle research was the association between the appearance of genuine crop circles. Forget the hoaxes, there's plenty of those. But the genuine crop circles were always appearing beside ancient sacred sites, not just stone circles, but ancient places of veneration. So there was this constant attraction, like there's a message being said here. Uh, it took a long time to work it out. The first time we realized there was a direct association was also because of the mathematical proportion between one and the other. And then we had dowsers and people who could actually afford $40,000 magnetometers to actually look at the energy of what was going on in the land and found that the, uh, we could actually map the Earth's telluric currents. So these are the electromagnetic currents that float uh, along the ground like serpents. And uh, we found that there's a genetic uh, finger, sorry, there's a magnetic fingerprint in the sacred sites and the crop circles would be appearing on the same points of energy next to the ancient sacred sites. And uh, one year when it was in winter in England, when I was doing all this research, I actually learned dowsing. And I was do getting exactly the same hit using dowsing rods or what I call the bent coat hangers. So I, when you don't have $40,000 piece of equipment, you learn how to douse really well and you get the same results. Uh, it's quite uncanny. Uh, in fact, there's a, a guy here who works for Portland City Council in Maine, and he actually goes out with a pair of dowsing rods to look for underground pipes. And we both came up 
we're both sitting in a parking lot and he's saying, what are you looking at? That uh, well, I'm looking for energy. I said, Oh, I'm looking for copper pipes, really. And he's still got the dowsing rods, and he's paid for by the local council. So um, the idea was that I was mapping where the where the um, the energy field of the local sacred sites in South of Britain, and then quite by accident or coincidence, when the summer comes around, the crop circles would appear exactly at the places where I had been doing the mapping. And I've managed to map the energy field of the real crop circles. And there was a guy that worked with me that did the same thing with an electrostatic meter. So we were both getting the same hits of information. Went back to the local sacred site and found that the crop circle had imprinted its energy field on the telluric current and it had transferred to the sacred sites. And suddenly, within a few years, people suddenly felt drawn to the ancient places, like something just opened. And that was the whole point, because... And we now have to go on to a completely different uh, sort of point here. There was a woman who was, um, she's an incredible psychic. Uh, she actually helps work with the police in Britain to look for murders and missing people and so forth. Uh, she has an exemplary track record. And um, she was uh, accidentally vectored at the origin of the crop circles back in the eight, early 80s, where most people didn't know what one was. In fact, when she first vectored it, no one had ever even seen a crop circle. And she was told who the consciousness was behind it, what their purpose was, and what the whole intent was for this developing scenario. And uh, once she read the transcript, she said, what the hell is this? And they said, we will show you signs of these symbols that we'll be making across the face of the earth within seven days of your time at the hill, at the foot of the hill of the shining people. Now, we know what that is in Britain because it's called Silbury Hill. That's what it means. It's Europe's biggest conical mound. And um, that's when the first crop circle appears at the base of Silbury Hill. And that's when we realize that these beings or entities called the, the shining ones, the, the shining people, were the ones who were putting down the information exactly in the same method that they did when they were constructing the old temples on the face of the earth. Except now that they're, they're not longer using big stones, they're using the technology to flatten crop. And the connection here is that the shining ones is the metaphor for those tall people with the elongated heads that I've been talking about. But all around the world, in South America, Central America, in Japan, Polynesia, their, uh, their metaphor or their nickname was the shining people, the shining ones. So, yeah, the crop circles are literally filling in the gap uh, in a place where we've stopped building sacred sites around the earth. They're filling in the gap to, A, remind you of a connection that we're, we're missing with nature, to a warning that we're in the middle of massive impending catastrophe, and we better start preparing, and they're giving us 40 years to do so. So they're actually doing us a huge favor. Right. Well, the 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 previous guest that I was speaking of, he he believes that uh, the crop circle phenomenon has actually slowed down uh, a tremendous bit in the past few years, and we don't see even as close to as many as we used to. Do you find the same thing? Yeah, it's it pretty much stopped happening in two thousand three, uh, and I, it's bad for business, which is why I get banned from every every uh, Facebook forum, and uh, they don't want to talk about my book. Um, you know, I'm supposed to be one of the leading researchers on the subject, for heaven's sake. But, you know, it's, it's bad for business. You can't sell calendars. You can't sell photographs. Mm. Uh, you know, people on YouTube will start complaining. So I'm persona non grata, but I'm not here to sell books per se. I mean, if someone buys my book, that's fantastic. But the original intent was to put the information out so the public understands the importance of this communication so that we can be better prepared. And then from that, hopefully, I can buy a house or a car that isn't 18 years old. 
It's the other way around. My intent is to give the information and make a living from that, not the other way around. So back in 2003, uh, when my book was published, uh, and in fact, it's just been republished 20 years later, the 20th anniversary, yes. Um, they, uh, it's funny how within a year, the crop circles went down from about you know 15 real ones to about three, and then boom, they disappeared. And suddenly you get a mapiramia in Ohio, you get one that, uh, near the Serpent Mound, and, they, and it's been coming up every other year. You get some in Alberta and Saskatchewan, but it became very, very rare. We thought, what the hell has happened here? It's almost like the book was guided to be released exactly at the right time to be the exclamation mark of the entire communication. And, and I'm beginning to realize that was actually... I may have been part of the actual process. Who knows? Um, and uh, I suddenly realized, well, the crop circles were, was a kind of communication. And like any conversation, it has a beginning and a middle and an end. You can't just keep doing this because it's fun. There's a purpose behind it. And we did learn, yes, we've given you the information. Now you have to apply the information that we're given. There is healing modalities in the crop circles. Yes, we've, we've already worked on those and they're still out there. We've given you the, the blueprints for devices which will help you get yourselves off fossil fuels. Yes, the image on the cover of my book has been built by three different uh, technicians around the world. And, it's, and then they're saying it's an anti-gravity device. It actually raises itself off the ground when you give it an electric charge. So we have all the information that we need in the actual information that we gathered over 20 years. Now we have to work with it. So not surprisingly, they said, from now on, we're just fine-tuning the energy grid of the Earth. We're putting uh, one simple circle here, a simple circle there, to buy you time. I'm quoting now. We're buying humans time for them to realize you're in the middle of big changes and you need to start preparing. So everything pretty much, 99% of all the crop circles that you've seen in the last 15 to 18 years have been made by people. And and that was, and that was the, the double-sided uh, sword of, the, of releasing the book with all the mathematics and the geometry was that the hoaxing was going to get a lot better. At least it would look better because now the hoaxes could actually imitate the look of a real crop circle because it's all about harmonics. But they still can't fake the, uh, the the changes in the soil, the changes in the plants, and all the other myriad of science that goes along with the real phenomenon. So, you know, I'm sorry if it's bad news for people if they're hearing this, but if you really want to be in the uh, rhythm of what the importance of the information, you've got to go back to what we were doing 20 years ago because the information is still very, very important. You know, I would rather uh, be told the truth than follow a, a, a piece of fiction because it's not going to help me in the end. So it's important to go back what uh, people like myself were doing 20 years ago because there's so much information there and it's really proved to be very useful. Right. Very, very, very much so. And Freddie, this was incredible. Uh, I'm definitely going to have to have you back on sooner than last time. There's so much more. We covered a material there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we got so much more we could cover. We just scratched the surface of the stuff. Scratching the surface. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That was incredible. Before you go, let everyone know where they can find your books, your website, uh, social media, all that good stuff. Oh, my God. Just go to invisibletemple.com. Uh, books, videos, articles, and I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I might not reply to you because I'm always doing something else, but at least I'm always giving you out information. But invisibletemple.com is the place to go. And don't support that guy, that billionaire that runs an online bookstore. He's putting us all out of business. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, fantastic, Freddie. Uh, like I said, we'll definitely be talking to you again soon in the future. My pleasure. Be well. Thank you. Until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. We'll talk again tomorrow. See you all then.